Good evening. We're in Ezekiel 46 tonight. This was another difficult chapter. And um, had an extra week to work on it, but it, I don't know if it was helping out a whole lot. <laughs> but when you go into these, you want to go into them to figure out why, uh, why is it here and why should we study it. And you probably can't remember too many lessons that you've had from Ezekiel 46. But we'll go through here and see if we can find some good reasons for us to be studying this here tonight. In verse 1, thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened. On the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Now the prince was to bring his offering, but he was not to offer it. He was not to go into the area that was for the priests. The priest would take his offering. They would prepare it. They would make it ready just as they did for all the other people. So just because he's the prince, just because he is the uh, seemed to be the head ruler over here, he does not have the right to take those those uh, places to do those things. So he had to stand outside there. The place where he was supposed to stand was designated. Of course, we had the east gate, the outer gate, talked about in uh, two chapters earlier. But here this is the inner east gate. This one is shut six days of the week. And on the seventh, or on the Sabbath, that's when it would be open. It would also be open on the new moon. So the Sabbath, which would be the, the seventh day, whatever the Sabbath day would be, whether they would celebrate that on the first of the week or the seventh day of the week, they just, as long as it was called the Sabbath, that's the one that they were to, to have this working on. And then the day of the new moon. So these were the days that people were supposed to come, bring their sacrifices, and bring their new moon sacrifice, and the prince was supposed to come, people were supposed to come out and to, to see this. So basically, you can think of it this way, everyone was supposed to, supposed to show up at church on Sunday in at least one midweek service throughout the month. Well, the new moon was once a month. Of course, the Jews were on a uh, lunar calendar. So their calendars, uh, each month was the set number of days. They would have 30 days in the month. And then every certain number of years, they would add a month. And that's how they would uh, uh, align their calendar. We just do a leap year every, or a leap, an extra day, and leap year every fourth year. So the priest, the prince would enter. He would enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest were, shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. So once it was opened up for what was to be started, it was to remain open and not be shut until the sun went down. Verse 3, Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway, before the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moon, the burnt offering and the prince that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish, and the grain offering shall be one ephah. 
for a ram and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give, as well as the hint of oil with every ephah. So the burnt offering here, six lambs, all without blemish, of course, and a ram without blemish. According to the law of Moses, only two lambs were the burnt offering for the Sabbath, beside the continual one that they would do uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, in, fact, in fact, we go over there, Numbers 28, look at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, or regularly, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of a ephah of fine flour as grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a henna pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb. In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering at the beginnings of your months. And you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Now take a look at this difference here. Two young bulls one ram and seven lambs in their first year without without blemish. What they were to do here in this one, it was six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. This uh, The thinking on this, as far as the numbers is concerned, is that in the Mosaic Law, the number seven was used, seven lambs, for the idea that perfection could be reached. But in this one, it's the number six that is used six lambs, and then added at one ram. So the actual number overall was, was there. But six was, would show you that perfection could not be reached. Because six is the number for man, seven is the number for, for perfection. And so we see that there is a difference here of this. In some ways, the sacrifices of Ezekiel are increased over what Moses commanded. And in some instances, they are decreased but they are generally changed. Now, the daily sacrifice is not mentioned in Ezekiel here. And I didn't write that word here, there, and yours, but it's, it's mentioned, not necessarily as a daily sacrifice, but it is mentioned later on. The King James says, and he shall be able to give. The New King James reads it as much as he wants to give. The, uh, I'm told the actual literal rendition of this Hebrew is, as he shall be willing to give. So the, the uh, parts of the offering were as much as the prince wanted to give. He was not re- there was not a minimum amount required, but of course this would show the attitude of a person, uh, how much they're willing to give, what they're willing to do. So this was uh, not something you see too much in the Mosaic Law, but something that you see here. So he shall, he shall give as much as he wants to, to give in, in uh, part of that offering. The rest of it, the lambs and so forth, they were numbered as what you were supposed to do. Verse 6, on that, on the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish, six lambs and a ram, and they shall be without blemish. He shall prepare a grain offering for an ephah 
for a bull and an ephah for a ram as much as he wants to give for the lambs and a hin of oil with every ephah. So this is the new moon sacrifice. This is something that was done on a monthly basis. The new moon would signify a new beginning. In the Mosaic Law, the uh, requirement was two young bulls and a ram and seven lambs. Again, we're seeing the differences in the in the numbers. Seven being replaced with six and one. Now here it's only one one bull with the rest being the same. So the bull went from two to one. And in most instances you're seeing, instead of a morning and evening sacrifice, you're seeing just a morning sacrifice. The evening sacrifice seems to be be done away with. Much like churches anymore don't have a Sunday night service. In verse verse 8, When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule, by the gateway, and go out the same way. Now, I did uh, search for a, um, a fairly reasonable amount of time, probably more than I wanted to, but I'm trying to find a, an actual drawing. How can you enter through the vestibule? It would seem like you have to enter through the gate and then enter into the vestibule. And I do not have an answer to that question. I've gotten outlines of where the vestibule is and, and there might actually be passageways underneath and, and all this sort of stuff. So maybe that's how they, how they did it. But he shall enter in by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So the prince was to enter and leave in exactly the same way as he came. And this is through the, the vestibule. Now the vestibule, this is a place where the priest had to come in and they had to change into the linen garments. Ezekiel 44, 17 and 18 talked about that when they came into the, the holy area that they could only wear linen. Only linen garments were allowed to be born, worn in there. And then when they were to leave, they were to take off the linen garments and put back on their, their other garments that they had certain ones that would be in there for the holy sacrifice. And they didn't go anywhere else. This is the only place that they went. Now, you all can, uh, can attribute that. How many of you, uh, you have certain clothes for certain activities? And those, those activities, this is all that they do. They don't, they don't serve any other function. Your Sunday clothes might just be for Sunday church. And, and that's it. maybe some dress-up dinners, things like that. But uh, we, we have our dress-up clothes and we go to dress-up places when we do that. We have other clothes that we wear out in the, into the yard. Um, of course, you go out into the yard. If you have a yard to, to work on, you'll get certain things on there that uh, you may not be able to get out. So if you have some yard clothes, then you, um, you don't so much care about that. I have some clothes that I use for staining. So if I, I, I just don't like the stain on even though it's just work clothes, I'd rather not get stain on anything else other than the, the stuff that has stain on them already. So I have a staining shirt. I have a staining uh, shorts or pants, depending upon the time of year. And I will go and change into those things in order to uh, stain a bed. And then I'll go and uh, I may just leave them on for the rest of the day. Or if I know that I have staining to do, I'll put those things on. And certainly some of you may, may have that too. I have you know drawers, one drawer that's... Uh, that's just the work clothes. You know, the drawer, these are the running clothes. Um, Sunday clothes, they get hung up in the closet. They don't go into a drawer. <laughs> they have d- different stuff. But e- each of those drawers, you know, they, they, have a, they have a function. Well, that's what he's talking about here. They have a function. So they have clothes that they would wear to the vestibule. But in that vestibule, they're going to change into the garments that are permitted for the Holy of Holies. And those garments didn't leave there. They didn't go out there, 
outside into the outer court because they would get soiled with things that they were not supposed to be soiled with. Now, in the the uh, the areas where they were being used, they, of course, would get soiled with blood. It was not something, it was not a clean environment. It was not something that was spotless. They would have certain things that would that would get on them, but that was okay. I guess they would uh, wash them and get the blood out or replace them or whatever they needed to do, or maybe a certain amount of blood was okay on those. Um, <laughs> don't know. But in the, we had a question that was asked some time ago, and I'm trying to work into, uh, get into this, and chapter 44 nearly did that, but we just uh, had some other things to, to work on, so we didn't get into that one. But the uh, parable that Jesus tells of the wedding garment, that uh, there was a, the parable that was uh, the invitation out to the wedding, and then of course the different people who were refused coming, didn't want to come. I don't have time, and so forth. So they went out to the highways and byways, and they got everybody they could, and they brought them on in. And then as he's going around, he's looking around in there, and there's one person, and they don't have on a wedding garment. I believe it's in Matthew, uh, chapter 22, if I remember correct, on that one. If you want to go back there and look at that. And he says to him, why don't you have on? Uh, in fact, if you could pull up, I think it's Matthew 22, pull up... Um, Verse 10, 11, and 12. Because I didn't put them in my outline. I probably should have. But in the, it was Eastern custom to provide a simple robe to be worn at a feast. Wedding feast, any type of feast, which secured the uniformity of all the guests. So that way all the guests were wearing the same thing. So when you came into one of these feasts, the attention was not on the wonderful garments that different people were wearing. And that wouldn't be part of the conversation. Everyone would be wearing the same type of a garment. That conversation was gone. So whatever the feast was about, that would be the focus of the thing and not what people were wearing. How many times you know you go into a place, something fancy, and how much of the conversation is dominated by what someone might be wearing? How nice it is? Is it new? Um, how good it looks on them? Things along that way. So you're just getting basically a, a regular garment. wasn't fitted for you. You know, it might be one size fits all or small, medium, large or something like that. Uh, but that's that's all. Now, one man was not wearing one. It says only one man was not wearing one. If you look at verse 10, So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, in the wedding hall. I believe it says, uh, was filled with guests. And then we get to verse 11. Take a look at this. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, in verse 11, when it says that he did not have on, go back to verse 11, when he came in, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. The word there for not is the Greek word, and I'll just spell it for you, O-U. It is simply a statement of fact. He did not have on a wedding garment. When you get over to verse 12, so he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? Depending upon the translation, not having a wedding garment. And the word there would be the word me, or M-E, we just spelled for you. M-E, it's a statement of rejection. In verse 11, it's a statement of fact that he did not have one. 
in verse 12 as a statement that he rejected wearing one. So what he did was he came up and because this is the master of the, of the feast, he knows that everyone who came in was approached with, wear, with a wedding garment. And he, in, if he is in there, rejected receiving it. He rejected not, not having it. I do not want to put that on. And so he came on in without that. Much like, uh, you know, if you want a modern day thing, you go into certain stores, you must have on a mask. And if you refuse, <laughs> now, I've already told you, I've tested out Lowe's policy on that many a time. I walk into Lowe's all the time without a mask on and no one says a word. I get all my stuff I have to do. I check out and no one says anything. So if you have any problems with any of these hardware stores, go over to Lowe's. They're not going to mess with you. That's if you just don't, if you want to wear it, then you'll be fine going anywhere that you want to. But that's a, the thing where there's a rejection. I do not want to wear the wedding garment. And so that's why he was thrown out. There was a rejection. It was not that, uh, it was not that he couldn't afford one. It was not that he could not have the proper garment. The garment is provided by the giver of the feast. He did not have to bring one with him. But he rejected it at the beginning. This is, of course, a custom to us putting on the robe of righteousness that Jesus Christ has. And this is, uh, something that was rejected there. Now you can try and get into all the doctrine of, well, how did he get in there without it? Uh, <laughs> well, obviously, he didn't get in for very long. And he was, uh, he was kicked out. In Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 64 and 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And Ephesians 4.24, That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10 And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. But there are those who wish to be in the family, wish to, wish to be going to, seen among those who go to church, but refuse to put on the new man. That's what the focal point there would be. Let's go over here back to Ezekiel 46. We're at verse 9. But when the people of the land came uh, come before the Lord on the appointed feast days. Whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And whoever enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. He shall not return by way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. I think we covered this before. That if you come in the north, go out the south. You come in the south, go out the north. This is not a traffic control thing. It's a reminder that worship should change us. I don't know if I went over that before. I had it to, in my head anyway for us to do, but uh, we did. Worship should change us. When we come into the presence of God, we should not leave the same way. Verse 10, The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go in, he shall go in. And when they go out, he shall go out. 
this is, a, I think, more of a regulation on the prince. He needs to be there. He cannot be going on and say, well, I have other duties as the prince and this stuff of being here in the temple every seventh day and on a new moon, this is just too much. I've got too much on my plate. I've got too many things to take care of and uh, I just can't do that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be there today. Nope, he needs to be there. There's a whole lot that was centered around him. He is the ruler of the land. It doesn't call him the king, but it would seem to be he's in that type of a position. Again, Ezekiel's... Uh, prophecies before he talked about the princes of the land which of course corresponded to the rulers so when this is going on he needs to go in there so when they go in he shall go in and when they go out he shall go out so he needs to be there he needs to stick around uh, verse 11 at the festivals and the appointed feast days the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull and an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. So this is the third time we see mentioned as much as he wants to give. But when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering, or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall be then opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut. So, beside these three times, when as, uh, as much as he wants to give, there may also be times that he just decides, you know what, I don't need to give a burnt offering today, but I just want to give a burnt offering today. I don't need to bring a peace offering to the Lord today, but I just want to bring a peace offering to the Lord today. So, he may make an announcement and let all the people know, I'm bringing a burnt offering, I'm bringing a peace offering. And so, the gate would be opened and the people would come. I don't know. It doesn't seem anywhere that I can find this. It's required that all the people come. But some people would come. I don't see this a requirement for all the people to come. I do see it as a requirement that the prince comes. He needs to be there. And he can apparently just decide to bring a burnt offering or a peace offering even on the times when it's not required. When it's not the Sabbath, when it's not the new moon, or any other time that he would bring that. He can just decide on his own. We'll see that sometimes with David. You'll see that sometimes with Solomon where they just got um, very excited about bringing sacrifices to the Lord and they would just go over and above and, you know what, I just want to do this. And this is probably the attitude that they're looking at here. So this would be on the weekdays. The weekdays are the days of work. The gate would be closed. It's not closed and sealed up as we we saw before. It is closed in the way that you can open it. So it has the doors, but those doors stay closed until the Sabbath or the new moon or whenever he would decide to do a voluntary offering, those things would be, be open. So you can see that the prince wants to make a burnt offering. It's not just something he's going to decide in the morning. Let's just go ahead and do it. There needs to be some preparation. Probably doesn't need any more than a day. He probably just say, tomorrow we're going to go ahead and do a burnt offering. Tomorrow we're going to do an extra peace offering, whatever it might be, and just because I want to. And that apparently is good enough of a reason. Just because I want to. And I think I get from that that God wants him every once in a while to want to. to just, it's not required, but I just, I just want to. So there you would have the, the opening and the closing of the gate for that. <clears throat> 
But um, go back over here, verse 12. Let me read that again. Now, when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall then be opened for him. And he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out. And after he goes out, the gate shall be shut. Now, we've seen this a number of times where the gate is said to be shut. It's opened and then it's shut. If you go through the, the scriptures, you'll notice a few times where a gate or a door is shut. In Genesis 7.16, probably the one that comes to most people's mind, when all the animals had entered into the ark, it says the Lord shut him in. In Matthew 25 and 10, and while they went to buy, the, of course the uh, bridesmaids who weren't ready, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Luke thirteen twenty four. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us and he will say to you, I do not know you where you are from. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Then when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came, and the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. So there we see that the shut doors did not affect Jesus after his resurrection. But the shut doors did affect those who were not resurrected. And this opening and shutting of this gate would probably be to remind these people there is a time when the doors are shut. And what is cut off at, when that is done is certain aspects of worship of God. When that eastern gate is shut, things change. When that eastern gate is opened, and other things begin to happen. But when that is shut, and it's getting them used to this open and shut door that Jesus would, uh, would teach about. Verse 13. You shall daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of the Lamb for the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning, and you shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hin of oil to moisten the fine flour. The grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering and oil, as a regular burnt offering every morning. This is the daily burnt offering. It's called the daily sacrifice in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 11. There it reads, He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That is speaking of the Antichrist who set up his image in the temple. But this is a continual daily thing that they did to take away the sins of the people. 
This is what the daily burnt offering was, was done. So for the daily burnt offering, the gate did not have to be opened. The prince didn't have to be present. The priest did their duty and did what they were supposed to do. Verse 16, thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, after which it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance shall belong to his sons. It shall become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. So again, we have some restrictions put upon the prince. He may have some governing abilities and uh, what his powers are is not really outlined here, but there are some limitations. It's kind of like our Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is what the government cannot do to you. That's what they made up because our founding fathers had people who made them do things they didn't want to do. So they came up with the Bill of Rights, which is simply what the government cannot do to you. So they, uh, this is this is basically that kind of restriction. This is what you cannot do. You cannot go out to the people and confiscate their land and then give it as a gift to your sons as an inheritance. That's, that's not how it's going to work. So the prince, though he may be over the land... He has to operate by the same laws that God had set up in the Word of Word of God. And that is the laws for the year of Jubilee. That on the 50th year, that everything goes back to its original owner. And so if you were to, uh, if you knew that two years was, uh, in, in two years, the year of Jubilee was coming, and you were going to so-called sell part of your land, it seemed that the uh, price of that land would be reduced since that owner would only have it for two years. The new owner would only have it for two years. So it would come back. So you can't really say that land was worth $10,000, but it can only have it for two years instead of the normal 50 that if it was in the beginning part, well, then um, it would seem that it would, it would devalue that land a little bit, at least somewhat anyway. And uh, at the end of that year of Jubilee, that land would come back to the people who had the inheritance because God did not want the inheritance of people's land to be divided up uh, outside of the families that it came to. Because he knew that some people are just going to be have a mindset that they don't value the inheritance that God gave them. That um, they just don't handle money that well. Other people handle money better. And so the people that are smarter with their money, they would gobble up all the land and the people who were stupider with their money would lose all their land. And so God wanted to make sure that, uh, that we're not going to have that happen. Um, we're going to have the year of Jubilee. Now, as far as we know, they never celebrated it before the captivity. I did see there was a reference in uh, one of the history historians that might have been Josephus, that there was at least an intention, whether it actually came about, but there was an intention that when the um, Jewish people came back from captivity, that they intended to um, celebrate the year of Jubilee. I don't know if they did. I just know that there was a reference to, uh, to that intention. So it was good that they at least considered it and thought about it. But the first people who occupied the land, they didn't uh, bother with it at all. Verse, verse 19. Now he brought me through the entrance, which is at the side of the gate, 
into the holy chambers of the priests which faced toward the north. And there a place was situated at their extreme western end. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the grain offering, so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out into... Remember verse 20. We're going to come back to that with another translation. Then he brought me out into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court, there was another court. In the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. So it's not quite a square, somewhat of a rectangle. There was a row of building stones all around in them, all around the four of them. The cooking hearse were made under the rows of stones all around. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. So he's taken on a tour. However, that was whether he had him become Ariel or whether he walked him around or whatever ways it was, it seemed to be Ezekiel was taken along this way. And he was seen where the preparations were made for the trespass offering, for the grain offering, so that they do not bring them out into the outer court as it might cause harm. Now, the New Century Version translates verse 20 this way. The man said to me, This is where the priest will boil the meat of the penalty offering and sin offering and bake the grain offering then they will not need to bring these holy offerings into the outer court because that would hurt the people. So somehow bringing these things out into the people's area, it would, would harm them. Supposition is made that when they would see the preparations being made, they could begin to think, well, I can do that myself. I don't need to bring this into here. I don't need the priest. Uh, uh, maybe they, would, they, they saw it become more common. Uh, whatever it was, the people seeing the, the priests and what they had done, if they had to bring it out into this, this area where they were, uh, God said it would harm them or hurt them or somehow they would, uh, uh, the effect of this sacrifice would be lessened upon them. So he said we need to prepare it and keep it out of sight from them and then just uh, bring these things on. And I'm um, reading some, some people on this this chapter. Some are trying to relate this to, in the New Testament, to people who would, the, the ministers who would go away and prepare for uh, uh, bringing the word. Because these folks, these priests also brought the word to these people. They were also, in a daily uh, part, they were teaching the people. That just, it wasn't not <clears throat> by the wayside. Beside the offering of sacrifices, there was teaching that would go on in these, in these uh, temples, in these, uh, in the outer court areas. And different ones would be set up and they would begin to teach the people. So people would come in all throughout the week and begin to hear or, or learn things. And there would be places they would be to, to be making these things up. And so they would relate this to, to that some way, that ministers need to have a place where they go and they prepare and they, they get things done. Um, once you do that, you kind of become comfortable with those, those places and you kind of get used to uh, what things you have at your disposal, what things they had to cook with, what the, everything needed was right there. But at any rate, God saw something that would come and that would hurt the people and he says, uh, we don't want to have that going on for this trespass and sin offering and for the grain offerings that were done. In these particular offerings, the trespass and sin offering, this involved some kind of meat. They were boiled. There was a, um, a cutting. There was a bleeding that was involved. The grain involved uh, flour and oil. 
typically the grain or bread offering related to the body of Christ, whereas the trespass sin offering would refer to the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And communion, of course, will take on both of these aspects of things. Now, as we look at this this whole thing in particular, we didn't do a side-by-side comparison. We compared a few of the things, but there are there's differences in what Ezekiel is told to instruct the people on that is different from what the Mosaic Law instructed the people on. Now, again, we don't exactly know the time frame for this temple. And you get into the next chapter, the next chapter really makes it tough. Man, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I, I kind of think I need two or three weeks between each one of these, these last chapters to get them, get them ready. But the, uh, in some ways you look at this and it looks like it, it's the tribulation temple. The temple that's set up that the abomination of desolation comes in on. And other times it looks like the, well, it can't be that one. It must be the millennial one. Um, it must be a temple in the millennial realm. And then you get into, well, why are we doing sacrifices in the millennial realm? I understand why we're doing sacrifices in the tribulation period, but why would we be doing sacrifices in the millennial period? Uh, so it's very puzzling. And depending upon what chapter you're in, you can build a case for it being one or the other. This is the, the fun of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel's got a good reputation right now. He's given some very ex- explicit uh, prophecies, and they've all happened. And they've come about, even though it looked like there's no way this that's going to come about. So even though we can't figure out how this is ever going to come about, I'm going to assume that he's he's in the right. And understand this too, we still don't see any people. Ezekiel never describes any priests, any people. He says where they come from, what they're going to be doing when they're there. But as far as we can tell, when he's there, they're either not there or he just can't see them. Whichever way that would be. But I put this question for you. What would you do if the word of the Lord came to you telling you to do something different from how you normally do it? If the word of God told you a certain way, a certain thing to do, and you got a word from God in your spirit, you're pretty convinced came from God, that seems to be different from that. How would you respond? So what you have is you have the Mosaic Law that came through the prophet Moses. And then you have the prophet Ezekiel. And I think on most people's part, who would they, who would most Jews rate higher? Moses or Ezekiel? Most of them would rate Moses higher. So Ezekiel comes over and it's about 860 some years later from the days of Moses. 800. And 60 years later, comes along a man who says, all right, we used to do this, now we're going to do this. What would you do? Because this is, this is what will be going on. If you are going to hold to the sacrifices, I would think you would go along with the, with the law of Moses. But if you're going to build this temple... And Ezekiel says, this is how it's being done. And it's not like Ezekiel's just coming up with it. He's being instructed by the one giving him the tour. This is what needs to happen. This is what's going to go on here. So there is a dilemma that I see that some people could come in on this. Do we offer the sacrifice 
the way Ezekiel said to do it? Or do we offer the sacrifice the way Moses said to do it? Do we have a morning and evening sacrifice? Or do we just go with a morning sacrifice? Do we bring one bull? Or do we bring two bulls? Do we bring six lambs and a ram? Or do we bring seven lambs? And that's just the beginning of it. We didn't get into any of the grain and the effort and the oil and the differences that were there. But there were differences in, in those as well. So what would you do? So the basic thing we have here is that in some places, Ezekiel is asking them to do more. Ezekiel's prophecy, not Ezekiel himself. Ezekiel's prophecy is asking them to do more. In some places, he's asking them to do the same. And in other places, he's asking them to do less. So I just kind of framed it this way. What would I do if God asked me to do less than I think I'm instructed to do? Now, I'll give you some examples on this. When you have the ten lepers who come to Jesus, how many of you would think that with the ten lepers, there would be something asked, Jesus would ask them to do something to be healed? But does Jesus ask them to do anything to be healed? He does not. He says, go show yourselves to the priest, which is what you would do after you're healed. So if they came to Jesus and they said, please heal us, how many of you could think that in their heads they're thinking, well, we had Naaman, he had to wash, we're, we're willing, we'll go wash somewhere. Um, whatever it might be, whatever, they're probably just prepared. Whatever he tells us to do, we're going to go ahead and do it. If he tells us to dip into Jordan, we're in there. <laughs> if he tells us to, to run to the Mediterranean, we're, we're, we're running. Whatever he tells us to do, We've got to have this mindset. We're ready to do it. All right, we're ready. We're, we'll go. And so they holler out to Jesus. He says, go show yourself to the priest. They may be saying, what? You're not asking us to do anything? How about the nobleman? He comes to Jesus and said, my son, he's going to die. I need you to come. And so he, he's prepared. He wants Jesus to come with him back and either lay hands, speak to it, whatever he chooses to do, but please come with me. And Jesus doesn't do it. He does less than the nobleman's expecting. And so instead of the nobleman coming back with Jesus, Jesus just says, go your way. Your son lives. So that was doing less. These are just two examples. You can probably think of some more, uh, some more when uh, you put your mind to it. But if he asks us to do less then I think I should, then I feel I have revelation to do. It could be identifying an attitude that faith in his word is not enough, I need works. Because Jesus is always good at targeting the attitude. What is the attitude that is really going on here? And the attitude that I could be having is, Faith in his word is not enough. There needs to be something that I should do. And when he asks me to do less than what I am doing, that can test my faith because I'm expecting to do more. I'm expecting to do something. But when he asks me to do less than I would expect, that can certainly test my faith. 
How about if he asks me to do more? This could be identifying an attitude that I feel I have done enough and he should look at my past faithfulness. How many have ever been in a place like that? We've been believing God for something, financial, physical, healing, job, whatever it might be. I've been believing God and I've been faithful. I've been standing every morning I'm waking up and I'm just, uh, no matter what doubts come to me, I stand against them. Father God, I thank you that I'm healed. Father God, I thank you that answer has come to me. I thank you I have that wisdom. Whatever it is, we're standing on it, we're standing on it, we're standing on it. And uh, and I believe I've done a pretty good job. Have you ever been in a place like that where you felt like you did a pretty good job? Or are doing a pretty good job? We could think, hmm, I wonder if God realizes how good of a job I'm doing. I mean, every day I wake up and I don't give in to the thoughts of fear. I don't give in to the doubt. I just keep going. And the word of the Lord comes to me and he asked me to do more like he did with the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler came to him and said, what more must I do to be saved? Well, you know the commandments. I've done these since my youth. And he seemed to be sincere and Jesus seemed to take him as sincere. So he said, go sell all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. Now I think the young ruler was thinking he'd done pretty good. And now Jesus is asking him to do more. And he went away grieved. What do you mean do more? Don't you see what I've done? See, there's sometimes an attitude inside of us that I can feel like I've done enough. And he should look on my past faithfulness and whatever it is that I need should be granted. Or here's, a, here's another hard one. What if he asks for the same thing? But doesn't he see I've been doing this? Doesn't, doesn't he see that this is what I've been doing? What if he says to me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just take healing. And I'm believing God for healing on a certain thing. And I'm, I'm standing on that. And as, as I come to God, I says, God, I need wisdom on this. We've been at this for a year. We've been at this for six months. We've been at this for however long it is. I just need wisdom. What should I do? And the word of the Lord comes to me and says, keep going. Keep doing the same thing. What do you mean keep doing the same thing? I've been doing the same thing for all this time. Well, I'd almost rather there be a request to ask me to do something more. But I've been, don't you see that I've been doing all this? Here's an example for you in Jairus. Or Jairus, however you want to pronounce his name. When the bad news came and the ante was upped, She's not sick anymore. Now she's dead. He might be thinking, well, there's something more now that we got to do. Before she was just sick. Now she's dead. And what's Jesus say? Don't fear. In other words, don't change what you're doing. What you did before is sufficient. Stay there. Just keep doing it. And that may have been a tough thing because he saw the situation change. And sometimes we see the situation change. I'm believing God for a financial thing. I've been standing and standing and standing. And it's not changing. It's not changing. In fact, it suddenly just got worse. Believing God for a healing situation. Standing, 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 standing. Suddenly it got worse. 
And when it got worse, I went to God and said, God, what else do I have to do? I'm expecting this. What I'm facing has changed. Therefore, shouldn't what I'm doing change as well? And if the word of the Lord comes to me and says, keep it up, that can sometimes be difficult. I'm thinking, I, I, I need something more. Surely there, there ought to be something more. But when we have to get tuned into that voice of the Spirit. And when that voice of the Spirit calls to me and tells me something, just like with those ten lepers. Remember this with the ten lepers. When are you supposed to go and show yourself to the priest? We spent some time on this a little while ago. The Word of God is very detailed on this. When are you supposed to go and show yourself to the priest? When there is a change. And for those ten lepers, there was no change. What Jesus is telling them to do is different than what the law of Moses told them to do. If you're in that situation and Jesus himself tells you, go show yourself to the priest. But Moses has said in the book of Leviticus, we're only supposed to do that when something changed. What do you do? Three situations, about the only three situations I can think of. I'm thinking that God wants me to do more. I'm thinking I hear that God wants me to do less. Or I'm thinking that I hear that God wants me to stay the same. I don't think it made it into your outline, but I wrote this down in mine. Whatever direction God's Word sends us, we'll be trying on our faith in a test of our trust in Him. Whether it's something to do more, whether it's something to do less, or whether it's just stay the same with what you got. Whatever direction God's Word sends us, we'll be trying on our faith in a test of our trust in Him. More than likely, you will be expecting one of the other directions than the Word of the Lord will lead you. You'll be expecting, and God is asking me to do something different, something more, whatever it might be. It always seems that the thing that you expect the least is the thing that we would receive. If you were those ten lepers, what would be the last thing in the world you would expect Jesus to say? He says, come over here, let me lay hands on you. I could expect that. He says, go dip into Jordan. I remember hearing about that. I can, uh, I can expect that. He says, go show yourself to the priest. No, I didn't see that one coming. And I, didn't, I didn't see that one coming. Even Peter and John, when they came to the temple, or they came to the gate, beautiful gate, that man was expecting something, but he wasn't expecting what Peter and John did. That was different from his expectation. When Jesus came to the lame man at the pool, he didn't expect what Jesus told him to do. But he prepared himself or just did it.
Ezekiel's word will probably make more sense once we see all this unfold. As is the truth with just about any prophecy, once it unfolds, we can usually see, oh, now I see. All right, now that makes sense. Couldn't quite figure that out before, but now I'm seeing where that's going. Whatever situation we're in, we're asking God for for help. It is His will to show us. His will to speak things to us. But either He's going to ask for something more than what we have been doing. He's going to ask for something less than we think we ought to do. Or He's going to tell us to keep on going. And if you've been believing God for the same thing for six months, a year, whatever it might be, just keep on going. It may not be what you want to hear. You get more enthusiastic and God said, all right, now do this. Oh, good. That's a change. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. We're ready for change. My wife and I were listening to... Um, Brother Hagen, as we were traveling. And obviously, he taught this a long time ago because he's not here now. But we sat and we listened to this one message of his. And um, afterwards, after we returned from the trip and my wife and I were just talking about something in the kitchen and I mentioned it to her, I said, you know, I never remembered Brother Hagen teaching what he taught. And she said, you know, I don't remember it either. So it was two of us who didn't remember it. And what he taught us on that one was that he was talking about the about healing and that people who are healed gradually generally retain their healing far longer and far, far more than those who received it instantly. And I really don't remember him ever teaching that when I was, when I was there with him. But it's something I've come to see in the Word of God that if you go through all the diff- different battles all through, I've, I've seen that, that healing come and gradually you're made well. The um, likelihood of it going away is much less. How many people do you know received an instant healing who some a week, two weeks, a month, two months later are back in the same condition they were before? In fact, sometimes they're worse. And so in this particular message, he was, he was going over some of that sort of stuff. Be listening to the voice of God. Sometimes he's going to take you in a direction that seems contrary to what you think the Word is telling you to do. But just know God will never lead you contrary to his Word. He'll never lead you that way. Somehow, there's a misunderstanding I have of his Word that makes me think that what he's telling me to do is contrary to it. But listen to what he has to say. He'll guide you on through. And just be prepared because no matter what direction he goes, whether he asks you to do something more, something less, or stay the same, it will challenge your faith. It will probably be the most difficult thing that you have to do. It may not be difficult for the person sitting next to you, but it may be very difficult for you. And set yourself that you will do it. Just like the ten lepers 
they did it. Even though it went against everything they knew from the Word of God, they did it. And they were successful. On the way, they did see the change. So the change did come in before they got to the priests. But that change didn't happen until they obeyed the word that God said. Father, I thank you for your great love for us. That you understand your word better than we all. And when you speak a word to us of what we should do, how we should change or whether we should just stay the same. You know what we need. You know what would challenge us. You know what would uproot whatever it is that's in our life that's keeping us from receiving the thing that we need. And I thank you, Father, that you will lead us to a place of being successful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Any comments? Any questions? Or anything to add? Hi. Thank you for that, Les. And like I said, this was a tough chapter. I read this, read this, read this. I did, um, I, I think way back when we were doing that part on Leviticus, I got the idea and I looked up on the YouTube and found some priests who were teaching on the Leviticus things and we were going over the uh, the thing with the lepers and so forth. That's where I was able to, I told you I sat and listened to a few of those. So I got this idea. I said, well, maybe if I find somebody else who's taught on this chapter, maybe I could find some <laughs> something that would make this thing relevant. And so I did a search for Exodus 46. And do you know one person had a message on it? And I listened to that. I said it was the biggest waste of time I ever had. I don't even know why. I, said, I got three quarters of the way through and said, no, I'm not going to keep on going. This is the biggest waste of time. This, the guy's not even getting anything in the, in the Bible. I mean, he talks about it, but he's got a theory about stuff and he's talking about his theory and this is ridiculous. And I'm not even sure why he, why he went out there and did it. But um, it is rather remarkable when you look at the things from Moses and the things that Ezekiel had, the differences that are there. I think it's mostly remarkable because there's no explanation. I would we get down into heaven, and I was hoping the last these last couple of weeks, you know, I get caught up in heaven. God would just give me some instruction on Ezekiel 46. Because <laughs> I said, I need some instruction. I don't understand. I got too many questions, and I I would get there and I would ask him. He said, first off, um, why are there no instructions as to why the sacrifices are coming back? Secondly, why are they different? And I had a few other ones I would ask them to, but never got caught up. <laughs> never got any kind of... I was on my own, I guess, so to speak, yeah. But, and the next chapter is not going to be much easier. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into the... The good side is that uh, Ezekiel's almost over. We've got two more chapters to go. 47 and 48. And I'm not sure, we might actually just spend a time, one, one week to last week, we might spend some time just reviewing just overall, the, the overall picture of what Ezekiel was doing in the, in the book. Because he's organized in a very, uh, very nice way. 
And uh, I'll, look at, I'll look at that and see whether we have something that we'll go out there and do. But thanks all for coming out tonight. Have a good rest of your evening.